Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Trusted Tech Talks podcast. I'm joined again by Jazz China, who for a second instalment, where he's going to talk further about his journey into tech and what he's doing right now. Doing things, solving problems on your own, achieving a goal, achieving success on your own, contributing to something on your own, it's good fun, it's great, but getting a team together, getting them focused, trying to achieve something, especially when it's difficult or impossible, especially when the odds are against you and you succeed, there's no other feeling like that. I mean, yeah, I haven't been able to find something else which is the same. And it's so invigorating, so satisfying. I, I never look back on management since then. Was this about the time or was this before the time when you were also had your side projects as well or when you were also developing <clears throat> your own stuff? Yeah, so Corner House was the project, the startup I ran on the side. So, you know, I said I couldn't, I wanted to go to, to San Francisco to do the whole startup thing. Yeah. Because of certain events that had led to keep me in stagecoach, I still wanted to scratch that itch. And Corner House was a way in which I could scratch that itch. So I thought, you know what, if I can't go to San Fran, I'll do it in Manchester. Why not? So I convinced a load of engineers to work on something in sweat equity. Of course, I was, you know, I was an engineer, I was working with them at the time to see if we could build a load of apps. Just put loads of stuff out there and see what works. And we had several different products, several different ideas that we brought to market. One was a dating app. In fact, there were a couple of dating apps, um, some logistics apps. One was the best, the, the thing that had the most success was an event management app with split payments. Although we tried to get split payments to work but the technology wasn't there at the time. It was so open to fraud and money laundering that we just couldn't convince any payment providers to make it work. And I mean, since then, you have things like PSD2, which have made it so much more easier. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'll still do it, but maybe after everything's done and dusted, I'll, I'll go look for investment and see if I can make this work properly. But it was, we had a lot of success with that. And we built the initial versions of the application. And I learned tons of product development, tons about what it means to build a product and, and take it to market. And it wasn't just about building a cool piece of engineering, a cool piece of software. There was so much more around it that I didn't really have an appreciation for. That way, as an engineer, I would probably never have an appreciation for. That, I think, helped me become a better engineer and a better technology leader. And I would encourage any engineer, even if you don't want to get into technology leadership, I would encourage any engineer to have a side project to try and bring a product to market. Just even if it fails, that whole process of building something, putting it in front of customers, seeing how they respond, taking it to market, there's an emotional element of that which completely changes your viewpoint. And as an example, I spent, I spent God, 12 months building out this one application to put it to market for people to use, what, 5% of its functionality? If I had spent a month and just put it out to market, I would have had more success than I did spending <laughs> 12 months. And honestly, man, that, that, was, that was crushing. That, was, that totally destroyed my ego. And it was really hard to continue after that, especially when you're... You're supposed to be the leader, right? You've got a load of people who are relying on you to put out this product vision and this strategy, and you put it out, and it completely and utterly fails, and you're like, oh, God, how do I now convince them to <laughs> listen to me? And it was hard, and I picked myself up from the floor, but it was a great lesson in product development. It was a great lesson in how to bring the product to market, and, you know, how to really, that kind of build, measure, learn cycle. Don't wait ages to get something out. Don't even think about building features. Think about how you solve your customers' problems. Think about what your customers, how you find out what your customers' problems are. 
I don't think about the, the least amount of work you can do to validate those assumptions and then to solve those problems. And that's, that's before you even think about the feature. And so we started to think about that and we started to think about how, how we could build a product around event management, how we could find a small user group to speed up that build, measure, learn cycle and get feedback, good feedback from people. So we started organizing the regular football match and we got managed to get like 10, 12 people initially to play football every so often and we used them as our user group. And then we started to stand outside. I started handing leaflets outside. The idea was called Creek. So I would stand outside these pitches that you could rent, like gold, and soccer, or whatever they were called. And I would hand out leaflets to people to say, you know, download this app. This can help you organize your games. These are the features. See what you think. And we got a good core solid user group of around 80 to 100 people to use the app. And then from that, we would gather feedback and we started building more into the app for people to use. And it really started to gain momentum. But unfortunately, the, the commercials didn't work. Like I said, I think it's the payments thing to work. We then decided to pivot into other markets, other areas way too soon before we really established and got hold of one market. And it was such a shame because about a year and a half, maybe two years after we'd stopped working on the application, we, we decided we were going to just stop and it wasn't going to go anywhere. So we decided to go our separate ways. And then about a year and a half, two years after we'd stopped, I remember sitting down talking to a recruiter who was telling me about this awesome app that they used to organize football. And it turned out to be Click. It turned out to be my app. And he was saying, oh, we still use it, which was, which was just, you know, absolutely killed me because I put so much effort into it. And then we decided it was really hard to walk away, really hard to walk away. But it was the right thing to do. And it was really bittersweet to hear him say, we still use it after all this time. And it was a great app. And I felt the draw, should I get into it? And it was, it was the right thing to do to walk away. And that's sometimes, you know, the, the, the important lesson to some of the stuff. It's, you've got to know when to pivot. And sometimes pivoting means throwing away the stuff that you've worked really hard to focus on the stuff that's important. And the stuff that's important isn't always the, the majority of the work that you want, uh, that you've worked on. And I think, I think that's really important for businesses to recognize. A lot of successful businesses aren't afraid to do that. So you you were you had that side hustle, which you know still being used probably could even be to this day. <laughs> you made nothing from it. <laughs> but then you, you did that during the stagecoach time. Then stagecoach was such a big part of your journey. You know, six six years there. What what was um what was life out like post stagecoach? Like what what was the what was the next part of your journey from there? After Stagecoach, I got a bit of a reputation of turning teams around, turning difficult situations around, dealing with difficult situations and stressful situations. There was, Stagecoach was very stressful at times, partly because, because of my step up. And this has been a constant through my career. I've always been the underdog. Nobody thought I was going to succeed as head of development and architecture at Stagecoach. Everyone, every one of the senior managers at Stagecoach wrote me off. But funny enough, the team did, and my boss had a lot of support and, and a lot of time for me. But for the most part, I was an underdog. And so when I came out of Stagecoach, I finally decided, okay, that's enough for me. I need to, I want to do something different now. I need a new challenge. Most of the roles I seemed to get were teams in difficult situations, teams that needed a turnaround. And I still had that startup pitch to scratch, but I thought, okay. What I'm going to do is I'm going to work as a consultant for a period of time until I find that right, the good permanent opportunity that's really going to scratch my startup itch. It's really going to give me what I want. And I think I think around about this time I met you, Manny. Um, yeah, we were just there uh, right at the end of the Chase Coach days. We did um, you came to one of the round tables that I was hosting, and then. You did a talk on serverless as well. Yes, that's right. Yes, I did. I remember that. I think you were you were against serverless at the time. Yeah, don't, <laughs> don't remind me. Was I really against serverless? I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure I was really for it back then. No, I famously famously said that it was a fad, didn't I? Um, yeah. But but you know what you did say to me? You said, do you know what? 
I do see the benefit, but I just don't think everyone needs to jump on board. It's when the business needs to do it. But uh, I said, I need somebody who's a bit against it. And you went, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I, I got got quite a bit of flack for that. But yeah, I don't mean, the way, the way I pitched it was it's more of an evolution, not a revolution. Businesses aren't going to suddenly say, throw everything away and start getting service. But again, I, I kind of proved that wrong as well with my experience at Sint and some of the things that we did. But we'll come on to that, I suppose, later. So yeah, I, I met you. And then we talked a bit about getting personal. And uh, God, I did not expect that to turn out the way that did. And I was told, when I first came in, I spoke to the MD. And they had some challenges with their tech teams. They couldn't get, and it was the typical sounding challenges, typical sorts of things you hear when you go into these sorts of things. So, um, so getting personal, is for, for those who don't know, was the e-commerce platform, wasn't it, for correct. Card yeah. Factory? and. I'm sure everybody's seen a card factory, whether it's in the Arndale or Trafford Centre, they're, they're all over the place. But this was their e-commerce platform leading up to Christmas. So, yeah, carry, carry on, Jazz. Yeah, that's right. So they had a very busy trading period leading up to Christmas. It was the busiest time of the year. And they made something like, you know, 50 60%, 70% of all of their money during the Christmas trading period. And a lot of their systems had some issues. Things were constantly going down. The development team wasn't as responsive as they used to be. Morale was really low. Stuff just wasn't getting delivered. There was a huge disjoint between management and the tech teams. And so the MD said to me, they needed somebody to come in and just help turn the team around, wrap your arms around the team and help us, help us get through this Christmas period, help us deliver a load of stuff, all these projects. And when I say help us get through the Christmas period, I mean, they were thinking about it. Yeah, this is how important it was. They were thinking about Christmas, you know, in June, July. And it was a big, big thing for them. So <clears throat> I said, okay, fine, no problem. It was a tech stack that I hadn't really had a huge amount to deal with. Predominantly before then, I was an open source developer. Um, what they did was mostly Microsoft stack. Um, is some of Azure stuff, some on-prem, .NET, and running on IIS, Time, Cycle, various other things. I had bits and pieces of experience in some of this, but for the most part, I wouldn't class myself as a, as a Microsoft sort of um, expert. And I was quite intimidated by that because in previous organizations, when you go into an organization, you want to build integrity with the teams that you're working in. And if you're not familiar with the tech stack, the worry was always, oh, the team are going to hate me. The team are going, are going to buy into me. They're not. They're going to think, well, why are you here? You're just like a project manager, and da, 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 and all those thoughts go in your head. So I nearly turned it down. But I thought, okay, well, maybe maybe I can make a difference here. And I can't remember exactly why I took it. I think part of that was a conversation with yourself. I, th I think you convinced me that maybe I did have some skills that they could benefit from. So I I said yes. And I remember I turned up, and on my very first day, the MD called me into his office. And he said, look, I don't want to worry you. I didn't want to tell you this before. It's not a big thing, um, so don't worry too much about it. But just to let you know, the entire engineering team has resigned, and they're all walking out the building. Hmm. <laughs> and, um, don't worry, you've got one junior engineer. It'll all be fine. Take the day to have a chat with her see where you stand, and then tomorrow we'll have a conversation about how we're going to deliver all these projects. And it was just, my head was just completely blown away. I thought, what the hell have I walked into? And um, yeah, that was that was the first real experience I, the first experience I had with getting personal. <clears throat> and then what was that journey like there? Because... Um... <clears throat> It, it was definitely, uh, definitely experience and something that you walked in, and uh, and you definitely left with, left them in a lot better place than being a team where everybody was walking out the door as you were walking in. Yeah, and so one of the things I learned at Stagecoach that really helped me here. So my 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 boss, my previous boss at Stagecoach, taken who I'd taken over from. I mean, he was super smart. He 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 was all over everything. He was one of those really annoying people that could, you know, sort of really, really high level um, spot something and just go to minute detail 
to see and point out what the problem was. And he had his hands in everything. But it was also one of the things that really kind of burnt him out in the end as well and ended up slowing us down. He became a lot the, the bottleneck in a lot of ways. Um, and, and not to take anything away from him, I mean, Jesus Christ, you know, I ended up half as good as what, as, as, as he was then, you know, I'd be, I'd be proud of that. I'd be happy with that. But when, so when I took over at Stagecoach, when I started to lead the team, I knew I couldn't be as good technically as he was because he was something else. Man. So I had to make best use of the team. And, um, I, you know, I didn't have, even, even though I was technical architect there for a period of time and knew, knew the systems inside out, I knew I couldn't operate like that. So I had to make best use of the team and I had to encourage them somehow to solve these problems and I had to push them to the forefront. And so that's the approach I took with getting personal. For what? First and foremost, well, let's just sit down and let's just talk. Jesus, you know, I have no idea what's going on here. I don't know what the solutions are going to be. I don't know what the problems are going to be. And so really, I just want to talk to you about it and figure out if you know and and just just get a feeling for what's going on here. And there was a, in those early days, there was a lot of there was a lot of talking, there was a lot of crying. I was really surprised by that. I mean, morale was so low, and, and there was a lot of crying, and that told me people were extremely passionate about the company and what they did, yet they felt so helpless to do anything about it. And I honestly, in those early days, I felt like a bit of an agony one. I would come into work and I would spend the morning with some of the engineers, some of the techies. And the range of emotions, they would go from crying, oh, my God, we can't do this, and oh, my God, we missed out on an opportunity, or to anger, God, we could have done this. If they just listened, we could have. And so I got a good feel for where I thought the challenges were, where I thought the problems were. And as usual, with a lot of these places, it wasn't necessarily the technology. The technology was holding them back in some ways, but the majority of the problems, well, first of all, we had to solve the morale problem. and. I did my usual thing. I went in there and I had some fun. And I started to build some rapport with the team, showed them, you know, gave them permission to, to have fun at work, showed them that you can enjoy yourself and you should enjoy yourself. You're doing something that not a lot of people have the opportunity to do, working in, the, in an industry. And you should feel privileged to do that. And you should enjoy every day you come into work. And look, let's face it, there's an abundance of work out there. So if it doesn't work, it's not like you're going to, to be out of a job. So don't put that pressure on yourself. But I know you want to make this work. So, so let's use that passion in a positive way. I put some really simple processes in place to prevent the team from being constantly interrupted. That was the problem. It was part of a large part of the problem. We were in a co-located office with the entire business on one floor. And the team was being constantly bombarded with requests. So I put in a really simple process and I got a, a junior to help push back whenever they'd get somebody come in to ask a question. Then we started looking at some of these questions and building a knowledge base of responses to try and get the business to sort of solve their own problems, to be a bit more self-serve, put together some more rigorous testing processes in place, try to encourage the teams to, so things would always fall apart when we would deploy. And it was always a pain to, to get stuff out, to, to roll back, to fix forward. And part of that was because we would take ages to get stuff into production. So there'd be a lot of work, a lot of emerges, a lot of features being developed before we'd release. And we were working on a two-week release cadence, except it wasn't always two weeks. And it ended up being four weeks. And this was nuts. So I kept trying to encourage the team to just, just deploy when you're ready, just release when you're ready. The first few times it was really scary because, because of all the incidents we'd had. But after a while, it became more and more easy, smaller releases, smaller batches. The easier it is to roll back if there's an issue, the easier it is to test, the easier it is to fix forward. So what you're doing is you're reducing the risk. And that's, that started to build out other practices. And it started to build a confidence in the team. And then morale started to increase. And then we got a few people in to help build uh, a, a really good culture. Um, and so some of the people who'd resigned left, some of the people who'd resigned rescinded their notice and wanted to stay and be part of the team, saw what we were creating. So we went through to the Christmas period 
and there were no major incidents, which was unheard of at the time. And the company had record sales for that period, which really helped springboard the next financial year and their plans for what they were going to do then. And we put them in a position. I mean, we, we came from, God, it's all going to fall apart. And it had fallen all apart. You know, the, the team had all resigned. Everyone was walking out the door to a situation where, oh, my God, we've got something really good here. We've got the seeds of a, an amazing culture, an amazing team. And we've managed to do the impossible. It was that feeling again. We've managed to, as a team, as a bunch of people with a shared purpose and shared goal, achieve the impossible. And it felt great and everybody felt it. And when we went through that Christmas period um, and we got through the other side, it was such a, we, we were all very, very relieved and all really positive and really happy. And yeah, I never thought that was going to happen going in. Obviously, I didn't tell you at the time when you were telling me about the job. Um, <laughs> yeah. I did not think I did not think I was going to turn that place around, but but we did. It was hugely successful. No, it was the, and also it was your first venture into that Microsoft stack as well. Your whole career working on open source. Um, so, but then it leads us quite nicely on to Cinch. Oh, well, just before Cinch. I worked for Intechnica as a tech due diligence. And this was quite an interesting experience because um, in, in the, so tech due diligence and product due diligence for private equity companies, so they want to buy an organization and they want a view on whether or not they're getting what they're paying for and the company is in a good position to be able to deliver on its business strategy. And we would look at things like the product fit, the, the technical stack, the culture, the ways of working, their approach to certain things. And we would use that to build and help build a view. We would then present to these PE companies on whether or not actually these organizations are going to be able to meet their objectives and, and whether or not these, the, the strategy is realistic and whether or not they can execute or if they if they were going to do, what were the risks? What are the challenges? Do they have a huge amount of tech debt, key person dependencies? Are they still working in a project-orientated way? Do they really understand what product means or product ways of working? All of that sort of stuff. And you get to see, when you're doing due diligence, you get to see things you don't normally get to see. You get to peer behind the curtain, ask questions you don't normally get to ask. And the insight it gives you is really unique. It's such a great experience, learning experience. And you see things that you would consider as wrong, right? Practices, ways of working you would consider as wrong, running multi-million pound businesses, you know, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of pounds, running, you know, a monolith. You think, how is that working? But it's working, and the teams are managing to support it. And they're not even using Scrum. They're just building stuff on top of it. And you think, what? But it's working, and it's working really, really well, and it's scalable for them. And so you think, how can you, how can you question that and say that's bad practice when the business is making money, the teams are happy using it? And a lot of the things that I thought were best practice, standard ways of doing things, it really helped challenge my view, and it helped set me up, I think, for Cinch. And had I not had that experience and seen that, I think my approach to Cinch would have been very different. No, that's interesting. So that. Leads us on then to Cinch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Cinch. Wow. Yeah, where, where do we start? Where do we start with Cinch? I feel like that was ten years worth of experience in space and time of three and a half years. That was well, a really I, I, re I remember uh, I bumped into you randomly. I was off, and you were on a lunch, and you said, "Signed an NDA. I can't tell you, but this could be huge." And yeah. I said, all right, okay. And I was just waiting for you to start. And then once you started, you told me about it. Uh, we were sat in a Wagamama's on St. Peter's Square. Yeah, that's right. Jeff. Yeah. 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 And then yeah. Um, I was like, right, but how are we going to pitch this? How are we going to talk about it? But yeah, talk us through change because that's the one that is the most recent. You're still part of the group now. So talk, talk us through that. Yeah, sure. So... <clears throat> I met Jeff Heddle fairly early on, and we instantly got along. He he had the same values and behaviours 
that I did. I, and I think that's really important. Whenever you're going into an interview, don't worry too much about, you know, the technical aspects. I, I, they, they told me about the idea and I didn't really get it. And I didn't really, I didn't really know much about the industry. So every time I've gone into a new role, I've always gone into a new industry. And Cinch was very different. So it was my first foray into automotive. And Jeff was trying to explain to me what they were going to do. It was back in those days, what they were focused on was basically classifieds. Now that's not where they wanted to end up. There's loads more they wanted to do. But classifieds was definitely the beginning. And he was trying to tell me about it, and I just just couldn't get into it. And I was like, mm. and then he told me about. So they built the original tech stack using a third-party um, supplier, and um, um, he was telling me about some of the tech stack. And again, it was a, a Microsoft stack through and through. And it was like, oh, this isn't my experience. Am I really interested in this? Do they really need someone like me? Do I have the right skills? And you ask yourself all those questions. You know, all the stuff around imposter syndrome, stuff like that comes into it. And my my wife, who's a full stack developer, was she was quite encouraging. She she forced me to, not forced me to. I mean, she wasn't gonna leave me or anything like that if I didn't do the job, but she convinced me that you know it could be a good opportunity. And and actually, like I said, I was really brought into Jeff and Johnny Crow at the time, he was the CEO, really brought into both of them. And because of them, I ended up joining because I thought to myself, well, it's not so much the idea that I value. It's the culture, the way they work, the behavior, it's the people. And regardless of the idea, the people are going to make it work. So that's what's most important to me. And that's kind of what turned out to be true in the end. And then with Cinch, that business from what it was to what it's become, that... that it's something you've got to be immensely proud of, but talk, talk us through because that went from startup to scale up to mass scale up, all happening during the midst of COVID as well, which a lot of people sort of forget, which was a tough, tough time to try and attract any type of talent into a new business, like jump ship from a place they'd worked for years to come and join this startup that's come up in Manchester. So, Talk us through that as well. Yeah, it, this is a hot. It's a it's a funny story to tell people because I say funny, not that kind of funny. But um, I mean, people aren't rolling on the floor laughing about it. But but I think people find it unbelievable. And oftentimes, when I'm trying to describe, I think people sometimes don't believe it, and sometimes think I'm over exaggerating. But I'm, I'm really not. I mean, I was when I first started, there were a handful of people, three or four people in the room. And by the time I kind of moved away from day-to-day activities in Sage, we were 200, 250 plus. And I, I met someone recently who was who told me that, yeah, you know, I, I special up in specialize in scale-ups. And that's what I do. And I was describing Cinch, and they told me, no, 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 you know, you're, you're more startup. You're more, you know, those sort of small startups. I'm in scale-up. I was thinking, well, um, you know, I'm pretty sure 250 plus people in three and a half years and less than three, actually less than three and a half years, three years is, is like extreme scale up territory, right? How do you, how do you define that? And, um, um, you know, it's, 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 it's hard for people to, to get their heads around sometimes, but if you, for the people that have gone through this journey, you'll know what I'm talking about. And at the time it just felt like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a lot of stress. It's a lot of work. Um, we're achieving a hell of a lot, but you started to take it in your stride. In, in some ways, that was a bad thing, and that was something that we should have spent more time and effort really kind of um, meditating on. So anyways, um, the first versions of the site were classified. So we would, the business model was we would present cars on a website from loads of different dealers. People would inquire about the car. That lead would then be sent to a dealer, and we would make money on the number of leads we would generate for dealers. And we, the first iteration of the site had been built using, um, uh, I think it was React front-end with Prism CMS on um, Docker containers managed in uh, Azure Cloud using AKS with a .NET Core backend. 
And, you know, it worked fine. It was okay. I thought it was overly complicated for what it needed to be, but it is what it is. And the first thing I was tasked with when I started was to transfer the ownership and the management of that from the third party to an internal team. So we, we didn't have an internal development team at Cinch. So it was basically just Jeff Heddle working with the third party. And so I was charged with doing that. At the time, we hired Matt. Actually, Matt started, I think it was two weeks before me. And I mean, Matt's brilliant. Matt Tuplin, who's, you know, again, gone to bigger and better things. One of the one of the best VPs of engineering in this country, in my opinion. And he, he hired some absolutely amazing people. The first two people we hired, first one we hired was Tolly, Tolly Espostolitis. And he's, again, he's gone to bigger and better things. We had a two-hour two hour conversation in an airport lounge in Heathrow, I remember, trying to convince him to join. Thanks for that, Tolly. I nearly missed my flight because of it. I remember, I remember, Jazz. I was sat, I was stood in my back garden because I didn't want to wake the kids up talking to him. And then I phoned you straight away and said, "Can you guys get on the phone?" So I was sat in the back garden while you were in the airport <laughs> to get that. That was, was, was crazy. I'm sure, I'm sure, security was going to escort me out because I was walking around this airport lounge for two hours trying to convince this awesome guy to join us, and. I mean, it was all worth it. He, obviously, he said yes in the end. It was all worthwhile. But, I mean, those were the sorts of things we had to do to convince people to join in the early days because since it was nothing, we were just like every other startup trying to recruit people. And then we hired Bob Scott and Tolly and Bob and a few others, Simon Garside, uh, worked together to bring on board the management of the website from our third-party supplier. And they did it in record time, absolute record time. And then slowly the team sort of grew. Jeff Heddle brought on Jack Gray, who was absolutely fantastic, great vision. Jeff hired a few other product people with them. He helped define not only the product vision, which you know was important at the time, but more importantly, product ways of working and product ways of thinking. And the thing I always the thing that really struck me about Jeff and the team there was when they would look at developing stuff, it was very um outcome-driven as opposed to output-driven. And it would always focus on, well, I'm not interested in estimates. And I'm not interested in you know, breaking work down into certain outputs and you tell me when those outputs are. No, what I want to know is, is the needle moving in the right direction? It was so forward-thinking. And it was great for us because what we were trying to do was engender. Me and Jeff always tried to work as a two-in-the-box. And we were trying to ensure that product and engineering worked as one. All the way down the, um, the, the the hierarchy, all the way down the leadership chain. When we used to have the saying, when I wasn't in the room, Jeff was the best CTO. When he wasn't in the room, I was the best CPO. You know, within the board. Obviously, Jack would completely school me in product, and you know, um, and Matt would completely school Heather. But the sentiment was there. The point was there. Product and engineering had to work together. There was no product. And there was no engineering. It was product engineering. And I remember we, so we used to encourage our engineering team to get involved in product discovery and really understand the customer alongside the product people. And we used to have, we had this alpha squad, which was the, one of the first squads we put together, the first cross-functional squads. And one of the first things that we asked them to do, one of our forward-thinking UX leaders have asked the team to do as a whole was, okay, go out on the street and start talking to customers and see what they say. We want to know what's the process that they go through through buying cars. What do they like about it? What don't they like about it? And these engineers had to get up from their seat and go out and talk to these people on the street. Some of them were really anxious about it. Most of them didn't like it. And it, to be honest, some of them got some great insight from this some of them not so much. The most important thing we were trying to get across was the sentiment. Guys, what this isn't about is the product people coming up with the requirements and then handing it over to you to deliver. No, you're a squad. You're all responsible for the customer. You're responsible for your domain, for that bit within the overall value chain. And whether you're an engineer or a product person, you know, you've always got to remember that you're delivering value for the customer, hence value for the business. You're all involved in that process. 
This isn't just about handing stuff over the fence for somebody else to deliver. And that, I think, really struck a chord of the teams and that really um, resonated with them and set the tone of the culture moving forward. Um, and then, of course, Project Cambridge happened, which was, wow, that was absolutely mental. I mean, you know, uh, Amazon are writing a, a blog post about that currently, a white paper, hopefully that will get approved and, and published. I mean, that was a crazy project. Uh, how did that come about? So, um, <clears throat> we were on, we, so, I think it was 2020, February 2020. I, uh, my wife was heavily pregnant. She'd just been given, she'd just given birth to my first son. I was away on paternity leave. I'd heard some rumblings and conversations about some big coming down the line. I had an inkling, an idea of what it was. Me and Jeff had talked a bit about what it could be. But then, like I said, I was on paternity leave. And about a week after that, we went on lockdown. COVID happened. We went on lockdown. And, I mean, that changed everything. And that changed the nature of every business. And so I thought, ah, okay, things are just going to slow down now. And I'm probably going to get asked to stay at home for another couple of weeks and not do anything. Well, obviously, I was also on paternity. So I was ready to, to, to slow down and spend more time with the kids, or the kid at that time. And obviously, because of lockdown, I was struggling to find nappies. You know, my, my mind was elsewhere. And then, like I said, a week into, a week into my paternity leave, Jeff had a call to me. He said, hey, I really need to talk to you. And I said, okay, well, what do you want? No, 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 I need to talk to you in person. Can I come around? I've also got a load of equipment I want to drop off at your house. So I was like, okay, fine. You know, we were in lockdown. I snuck him into my garden. We chatted. We, we talked, you know, um, under the cover of night. It was like, God, I think he came around at like 9, 10. And it was pitch black. And I had a little lantern. And we sat in the garden. Obviously, at a legally safe distance. Legally, probably shouldn't admit that. <laughs> um, if the police are listening, we were at a legally safe distance from each other in my garden, outside, not indoors, <laughs> perfectly fine. Please don't find me. Um, and he goes, look, uh, you won't believe it, but Tim and Abel, Tim and Abel were the owners of Constellation Automation, really entrepreneurial, very forward-thinking people. He said, if they want to sell cars online, how do we make it happen? And <laughs> my head just exploded. To go from classifieds to selling cars online was a huge, huge step, is a huge step. It's a completely different business, completely different model. And Jeff said, how do we do this in the smartest, simplest way? And he said, look, forget about building something. I'm thinking, can we just get a load of commercial off-the-shelf software, plug it together, put a phone number on the website, and have people call our customer contact center to make orders, right? Can we do something that simple? I was thinking it through, yeah, maybe we could try this, we could try that. We don't have to build anything. We just plug some stuff together. And, and we were just talking through. And he goes, okay, look, I, I, I know you're on paternity leave. Just sit, chill, enjoy it. But when you're ready, we need to figure this out. And, and I need your help on this. And me being the great parent that I am, I decided to cut paternity short. And I ended up coming back a bit early because it was so exciting. And I was so into it. Also, I was sick of being stuck at home with nothing to do um, except look after the kids. And that was really important. And I did look after them. Anyone's thinking, I am a good father. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so I came back early. And then me, Matt, Jack, and Jeff, we started planning through what this was going to look like, what, what we need to do. We started putting together a pitch. Jack and Jeff put together a vision of what it could look like. And I'm, oh, by this time, Tim and Abel had come back and given Jeff feedback and said, no, no number on the website, no calling into the contact center. We want to do it properly. We want to build a successful, scalable business. We've seen an opportunity in the market. This situation with COVID is going to blow over and then car sales are going to skyrocket. 
we know what's going to happen. Again, very, very forward-thinking people. They saw the opportunity and they wanted to take advantage of it. So they said they wanted to build a business that was going to be sustainable. It was going to last. <clears throat> and so they didn't just want a um, point-in-time solution. So do it properly was the thing that we got from them. And so Jeff and Jack put together their vision for what the product could look like. From that, I put together what it could take with, with Matt Duffling, what it could take, who it could take to deliver this solution, and how long it could take, although actually how long we got given to us. So we presented to the investors, we presented to Tim and Avril. It took a bit of back and forth with the rest of the leadership team. Uh, Joker, who's our marketing director at the time, Kelly Kane, our operations director, together we figured out what the business plan was. We then presented this to our investors, Tim Avril. We had a few rounds that were really brought in, really, really brought into what we were saying. I mean, you know, we got grilled, don't get me wrong. We had a lot of pushback initially, especially around the ways of working. How are you going to deliver this? How are you going to do this? I don't think this is going to work. Well, actually, this is, and this is why. And we managed to convince them, and they gave us, they threw money at us to get this delivered. But the one caveat to this was we had to do this in six months for a variety of different reasons. And that was it. That was set in stone. We had no opportunity to pivot. Now, now that, that's pretty crazy when you think about it, right? right? Because mm. just because it's a stop and take stock there. We had six months, not only to build the website, but all of the so all of the front-end backing systems, the operational systems, the accounting platform, the MarTech stack, the customer contact center systems, right? You have to build all of that you know, within six months. And that was, what, 10 times as complicated as what we built. We had an existing team that was, you know, .NET based and had a um, skill set in one particular technology stack, we had to retrain all of them to a new one because we decided to pivot. We had to recruit a new team and build a new team because we didn't have enough people to do the delivery. Um, and then often we seem to, to scale the, the, the business afterwards. We were in lockdown, so we were working fully remote in a way that we'd never worked before. I was obviously remote was so new then as well. You didn't have yeah. businesses that were fully remote back then. I know now it's the norm where you've got people coming in one, two days a week, but then every collaboration was done in the office, really. Yeah. I mean, we just started using Miro. We didn't even know what that was for, how we were going to use it. So mm. we started using Miro. And it was like, oh, this looks interesting. And we also, um, yeah, also at the time, I mean, me personally, I took on board information security and IT and architecture. And I had to scale those functions independently because originally it was thought the group could provide those services, but because of how quickly we had to move at Sync, we made a strategic decision, tactical decision, for those functions to be built out in Sync. So I had to build out, so I was, you know, as well as building out this technology stack, rolling out laptops and building out accounts and managing third-party software for um, people to use to do their day jobs. On, obviously we had COVID, and then to top it off, if that wasn't enough, um, uh, I was building a new house um, and, you know, <laughs> I had a son as well. So my life had just completely changed. And I think they say, you know, don't, don't start a new job or get married or have a baby or build a new house at the same time. Do one of those things. I was doing three out of four of them. Um, and that was a crazy experience. And I don't know how I did that. But... Yeah, we had to do all of that within six months. Now, you know, obviously we didn't do it in six months. We actually did it in five months, right? And we were, the business just wasn't convinced that we were ready and just didn't believe that we would be ready. And, but we did it. And, you know, post six months, we continued to scale. We managed to maintain that, that pace and that velocity. And we saw uh, a continued growth after that. I mean, it took us a couple of months before we were seeing a thousand cars or selling a thousand cars a week. We continued to innovate. We, you know, industry firsts like split card payments. Um, the teams were continuing to scale on the basis of those first principles that we set down around cross-functional autonomous teams that were all aiming for a particular goal, focusing on outcomes rather than outputs. 
and just empowering teams to do what was necessary and us working in a certain leadership fashion to clear the, the debts for them. And all of those things allowed us to continue the pace and post-Project Cambridge, scale the, the company to even bigger heights. And, and, and that, was, that was really, really amazing. It was just so awesome to see. Um, and yeah, I mean, it continues to, to, to grow. We continue to do some fantastic things, but it's really, it's crazy to look back in those early days and see what we, we did and how, how quickly we did it and how, how large we scaled. Um, um, sometimes I have to pinch myself and it's, uh, it's just amazing to be part of that journey. No, 100%. Uh, it's um, the talent that you attracted, you managed to retain the culture, the teams that you built. It, it really was, and probably still is, the envy of quite a lot of businesses in Manchester. Um, and like you said, they, those those people, those initial people have either moved on to, to sort of other opportunities that have just taken a step further or moved on to bigger opportunities within Cinch as group or within the business as it is right now. Um, so, yeah, it's a... Uh, I'm, I'm sort of putting words a bit in your mouth, but you must be proud of seeing how many people joined you as be that a developer or be that a product owner who are now sitting in director or heads of or VP roles or heads of communities. like, And that's in such a short period of time with your leadership, but... That, that I, I know from myself that I get so proud when people go on to to achieve, but you're, you're seeing that all happening in front of you now. So yeah, so kudos to to you and the the sort of culture that you, Jeff, and the leadership team built there. Yeah, I, I could. I mean, we could sit and talk for hours about all of the technical aspects that had an impact on what we did and why it was so successful. I mean, yeah, all right, the architecture was a big thing. Um, we had a very modern tech stack. We made some pretty bold decisions early on. A lot of people always say to me, yeah, well, you didn't have any legacy. It was easy for you. Well, no, not really. We did. But we made the difficult decisions up front so we didn't, so it could be easier for us later on. And I made the decision to throw away everything that the third party had built for us and start again with a new tech stack more one text. Our adoption of serverless was amazing. And Tolly's done a lot of talks around this, he talks a lot about the benefits of this, but it meant we could build stuff really quickly. It meant our engineers were bogged down by cognitive load and it unnecessarily our focus on building out or adopting an event-driven architecture really helped us work on systems and build on systems in parallel without teams having to step on each other's toes if you like. Now all of that worked really well. And that had a really big impact. Um, but also, we did. I, 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 the way I look at it is, I didn't. I didn't create these amazing people. These amazing people came to work for us. They saw the opportunity. They had all these resources available from, and they became great as a result. Of it. They became even better as a result. Of it. it was always in them. It was always them. It wasn't like I suddenly created a Matt Tuplin or a John T. Bear or a Jack Bramhall. James Hepburn was, Regan Atali. They were great beforehand. It was just we gave them the environment to realize their true potential. And they continued to do that. And um, I think it would be pretty arrogant of me to assume that they're only really good as a result of my leadership. Um, oh, man, it couldn't be further from the truth. And to your point, yeah, it's a, it's really, it's a really humbling experience when people like that come to work for you, choose to work for you. Really humbling experience. Because, and I said earlier on, I've always been the underdog. I've always been written off. When Cinch was starting, again, people, if you put my name on paper with some other more successful CTOs, you wouldn't bet on me. You, you'd bet on the other guy <laughs> on paper. I wasn't going to succeed in Cinch. And so in some ways it was a good thing because it meant all right, pressure's off. Nobody expects me to succeed. I can do what I want. And if I you know, achieve some, some form of success, then, then great, it will mean more. Um, and so I never really thought much of myself. But for people to come, some of the people to come work for me, to be in the company of some of these people, it's just like, wow, I've made it. 
this is amazing. And it's really humbling experience for me. And, you know, I wasn't going to call people out, but sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll call them out. I mean, you had people on the product side, like Jack Gray, Sam Hyam, Sophia Altunde, Charlotte King, Ollie Gower. I mean, Jesus Christ, all like the, 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 the superhero of, of product people, product teams. Just unbelievable. And on, on the engineering side, you know, I mentioned Matt Tuplin, John T. Bale, who I, I can't say enough good things about that guy. I, honestly, I'm just sometimes I think you chose the work for me. What? You got Dan James Hepburn, similar thing, Jack Bramhall, who is who's absolutely amazing, so talented. And again, his potential hasn't been fully realized. Tolius Postolidis, Johnny Barnes. Wow. I mean, that guy's rise and cinch was just phenomenal. But Barney Scott, Bob Scott, Jamie Roos, Mark Francis, Kev Jones, Andy Norton, all of these people. I, I'm not going to do them any justice by calling them out. And I, and I know. I know I'm going to piss a lot of people off that I've forgotten to, to call out. I apologize for that. Anyone who I haven't called out, I apologize. It's just trying to think of it on the fly. But, but these are the sorts of people that came to work for us. And, and I was really, really humbled by that. But then what happened was other really good people who saw these people, who saw the John T. Bowers, the Matt Tuplins, the Andy Nortons, the Tollies, the Bob Scotts, who saw these people thought, I want to work with them. I want to be part of that. So it had a kind of a knock-on effect. And so, you know, one of the things I always get asked, how did you do it? How did you do it? How did you build Cinch? It was, it was creating the environment to, to, to get these great people in. Jeff did the same. And um, all right, the architecture was important, but we, we created a solid vision of what we wanted Cinch to be. We knew exactly what we were aiming for. We had a set of values and behaviors. Back to that initial conversation I had with Jeff, a set of values and the behaviors that we we agreed on that we thought worked, you know, we we built a vision and a story and a picture around that and presented that story to externally to to to, to the market. And and also presented what set us apart. And we found really good people who aligned with those values, who bought into that vision, who wanted to be part of that, who wanted to work with us. And then and then we just gave them the support, the space, the time to do what they needed to do. A lot of the big, smart decisions didn't come from me and they didn't come from Jeff. They came from the team. And our role was, okay, to validate, press the flesh, look at those choices, but ultimately to back the team in making the decisions. My, the, the AWS decision didn't come from me. Serverless didn't come from me, right? Bob Scott in our team was the one that, that said we should use serverless. And he was the one, the biggest proponent for serverless architectures and EDA. And I kept telling Matt, Matt, it's a fad. Matt, I'm not doing it. It's a fad. Until he really sat me down and showed me the benefits. And he sent me a load of talks. There was a talk by Simon Wardfield that, that really changed my mind. And, and it was Bob. He was like, we need to do this. This is how it needs to work. And I'm like, okay. And, and then the pitch, the, the pivot to AWS, there was a groundswell from the team. And I really wanted to ignore it. I didn't want to have to be a CTO that goes into the group and says, yeah, your group strategy is rubbish and we can't use what you've given us and we need to completely pivot. We really didn't want to do that. And Matt, fair dues to him, Matt was trying not to encourage the teams to, we need to pivot to AWS. But, but I sat down and I thought about it and I thought, I'm not being a good servant leader if I'm not encouraging the teams to do what's best. And what they're telling me, what I'm hearing is, AWS is the best choice for us especially if we're going to go down the service route. So I said, Matt, encourage it. Tell the teams. They think it's the right thing. I'll go to bat. My, my career was on the line for this. Had this not worked out, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be here talking to you. I wouldn't have been in cinch. But that was my job, a servant leader. You know, give the teams the support and the space. And really, back, we brought some really smart people into the organization. What was the point of telling them what to do? No, you need to tell me what to do. And I'm going to back you. I'm going to put your ideas at the forefront. I'm going to spend time understanding the, the what and the why and then say, okay, I'm going to go, you know, sort of pitch to my books, pitch to the rest of the business, pitch to the board. And actually, if I can, sometimes I'm going to get you in that conversation. So I'm not going to pitch. I'm going to stand behind you. You're going to pitch. You're going to tell them what the right thing to do. Because ultimately, that's better than me presenting. Like Jack Bramble would have his IT strategy, his tech ops strategy. And I wouldn't pitch to my books. I'd say, right, Jack, you're going to pitch. And I'm going to stand there. Now I might bring it some context. I might 
nudge it back in line if it's going off piece. But ultimately, you're going to tell the CIO what the right thing to do. You're going to tell the board what the right thing to do. Is. And that's the kind of, the, the same sort of attitude Jeff had, which was, okay, this is my team. This is the idea they've got. Bring them with me to these conversations in the board, and they're going to pitch, and they're going to present those ideas. And that's how you build that initiative. And again, everything, everything we did was about building the right environment to align to our cultural values, to align to things that we knew would succeed. Cross-functional, autonomous teams with shared objectives, outputs, outcomes over output, shared common vision, making sure the teams were as close to the customer as possible, and they felt like they were empowered to make the right decisions. Um, and, and yet, creating the right kinds of uh, conditions to attract the right people. Ultimately, that's what succeeded. I can tell you about all of the, a lot of the specific, practical, technical things that we did that, that helped. But really, it was, it was about creating the right environment. I suppose my input really was about creating the right kind of environment and culture and helping build that vision, pushing the right people to the forefront. And, and hopefully, well, I, I hope that's that's why people chose to to work for me. And um, you know, I, I hope that's why they'll choose to work for me in future. No, definitely, just I just think it's testament with what those people have done during their journey at Stinch, and some of them have moved on, some of them took bigger roles, like I said earlier. But um, it, it shows it was a good environment for them. I, I, I sort of, I sort of like it a bit liking it a bit to when you say talented people but putting them in the right vehicle there's some formula one drivers that are absolutely unbelievable but if you're not in the right car you're not going to win the title yeah. and it's once they're in the right vehicle in the right car surrounded by the right team they become championship drivers and you see people when they move vehicles they they just don't win again and they can't get podium finished so they've always had it in them but it's just getting themselves in that right spot as well yeah, and you're, you're seeing this a lot nowadays. With, um, we've talked about this in the past. Because of the evolution of technology and serverless, in my mind, serverless is the, the sort of next revolution or evolution of technology, similar to how you know, moving from physical on-prem servers to virtualized servers was. I think it's that big. I think it's that big of an evolution. And what it's forcing us to do, well, certainly what it forced us to do in Sage is to think more about, when we use technical term, the socio-technical aspects of running a team, a high-performing uh, product engineering team at scale. And what I found, when I, what I thought going in was I'd spend more time working on some of the more technical aspects. Actually, I spent less time on that and more time on the socio-technical aspects, how you organize teams how you uh, present work to teams, how you focus on those sorts of things. Thinking about things in terms of the value chain or value stream. Thinking about the domains within that value stream. Thinking about how technology, your systems, your people are organized around those domains. And you know, the, the, the majority of the reasons why companies tend to fail digital transformations are usually people related or usually related to some sort of kind of socio-technical challenge. And what I'm finding now more and more is organizations are starting to realize that the socio-technical aspects of building a high-performing team are just as important as the technical. And as a technology leader, I think now more and more we should be, or more and more the skills in our arsenal, our skill set should revolve around socio-technical as opposed to technical. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that's been a really crazy, interesting experience, and I, and I feel like feel like yeah, I've had ten years experience in about space and time of three years, three and a half years. It's been you know really crazy, but really really interesting, great journey, uh, and a, and a one that I hope to uh, equal, if not better, uh, in in my next role. No, just well, it leads us on then. To- the final question I love to ask all, all of the all the people that talk on Trusted Tech Talks podcast, but if you were to start that development journey again, you've graduated from Liverpool, but you right now, right now this year, this type of tech scene around the northwest and across the country, what advice would you give 
yourself as a developer starting your career journey right now? So we've talked a lot about imposter syndrome. And I think this is probably, so yeah, this advice is, I think, applicable no matter what stage you are in your career, no matter if you're doing a very technical role, non-technical role, as an engineer or a tech leader, everyone feels imposter syndrome to some extent. And I think this applies to everyone. I, I felt it a lot, especially as somebody who was always discounted, as somebody who was always the underdog, and um, you know, somebody who, who didn't really consider them as consider themselves as suited to management or as a natural leader. I found this advice helped a lot. Now, I wouldn't say I'm completely over imposter syndrome, but I think about it less than I used to, and I, I don't let it hold me back. The first thing I would say is a piece of advice that my old boss, who's a CFO of, of Conservation Instruments, the guy Tim Lampard, really, really, really smart guy, told me. And I was I was telling him about some of my insecurities and some of the things I was worried about with regards to scaling usage, and if I if I could do it, if I was right. And he he stopped me and he just said, "Look, somebody's hired you to do the job, okay? So do the job. Somebody has faith in your abilities." So have faith in them. What you're basically saying to me when you're saying I can't do the job is that I'm not good. I'm not a good judge of person, right, character. And I'm not a good judge of your abilities. And I'm not accepting that as an answer. <laughs> so have faith in yourself. Do the job, right? Somebody's hired you to do it. Just do it. And, um, and that kind of really, really hit, hit the right kind of chords and really made me think, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm, I'm letting my boss down. I'm letting my peers down. I'm letting my direct reports down by constantly questioning myself. And I can't do that. And so that's the first thing I would say. The next thing I would say is confident people don't know the answer to everything. Confident people know that eventually they'll figure out the answer or find an opportunity. So when, you're, when you come across a problem or a challenge, and this happens all the time, and this will continue to happen to me, no matter how experienced I get. You'll always come across a situation where you don't know the answer to something. You'll always come across a situation where you're stumped. You think, damn, what do I do? Now, just because you can't find or don't have an answer at that moment in time, that doesn't mean you're rubbish. That doesn't mean you won't figure out the answer or won't find the opportunity that you need to. If you're the kind of person that will take that situation and say, oh, I haven't got the right answer, that's it, I'm not right, that, that can completely kill your confidence. So rather than focusing on why you don't know the answer at that point in time, have some faith that you will figure it out. Have some faith that, that the opportunity will present itself and spend your energy working on what the right answer could be, okay? And then the final thing I would say, and this kind of all leads to the, to the first two and imposter syndrome overall, don't wait until you have 100% confidence or 100% of all the information before you make a decision. You can't do that. And, and this is maybe advice that's more applicable to leaders, especially technology leaders, who I find traditionally are very reluctant to make decisions unless they have all the information, all the facts presented. Don't wait until you get to that point because it will be too late. If you have, I don't know, 50, 60% of the information you have, fine, great, good, that's enough. Make the decision when you need to make it. Don't put it off. Don't prolong it. Equally, you know, use the concept of least responsible moment. So if you can in a responsible way, put off that decision. Yeah, okay, fine, until you've got more information. But there will come a time when you don't. You have to make that decision. Don't put it off. Be decisive. I read somewhere that President Obama, he has this thing where if he gets to 50% confidence with any particular decision he has to make, then he'll just make the decision that way. 50% for him is a good thing. 50% is great. Oh, fantastic. If it works for President Obama, the former president of the United States, then it will work for you, tech leader, whatever field you work in. Um, don't 
get stuck in analysis paralysis, don't get stuck in having to try and get all of the facts, be decisive, make the decision when you have to. That's what makes a good leader. Um, and you're not going to get it right all the time. That's fine. That's fine. But if you're decisive and you go forward with it and it doesn't work, well, you have time to fix it. Reverse track or fix forward. And you know, if you have a good culture and you have a good environment and good people that work with you, it will be easy to do that. And nobody will question your integrity. The opposite, they'll support you. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I have to say on that. Oh, that's great, Jazz. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to just upskill the community, give back. Um, so I really want to thank you for your time, your input, speaking so openly, and uh, it's been really good speaking to you today. Cheers, man. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Trusted Tech Talks podcast with me, Manny, and my guest speaker, Jazz Chana, Technology Director, Cinch. Don't forget to follow us on LinkedIn and Spotify and subscribe to our YouTube channel so you never miss another episode. If you want to discuss the topic further, have follow-up questions or are looking for a brand new role yourself, please get in touch via email or LinkedIn.